1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2, Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God or God the Father. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her head be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For a man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought, not to, or ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of the man. For as a woman came from man, even so man also comes through the woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. You got all that, right? Let's pray together and go home. Father, thank you for giving to us the word of God. And you say in your word that all scripture given by the inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction, and training in righteousness, so that as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, as we come to a passage like this, which certainly has a degree of complexity, Lord, as we read through it and uh, try and reconcile what it is that your Spirit was saying to the church at Corinth, and particularly how that applies to us as your church today here in 2021, Lord, we thank you that you've given your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, And so we ask now that you would prepare us and give us a receptive heart to want to hear what it is that you want to say to us through the word of God this morning. So bless your word, Lord, and we pray you would speak to us by the power and the ministry of your spirit as we study it together. And we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You know, since our loving and all-wise God is the biological creator of the beautiful design of two genders that do exist, male and female. Now, already I may get our YouTube channel censored for saying that already this morning. But that is God's design, and to censor that would honestly just be censoring God. You're not censoring man, you would be censoring God. How the differences of male and female, which bring needed distinction among men and women, so that we can all operate in a way truly that is actually, in God's love and wisdom, what is best for us all. The question comes about, which is this, is it better to operate in faith and submission 
in faith and submission according to the way God says is right and best for us? Or is it better to just embrace the ideals of human reasoning, of human thought and perspective in a broken world culture that we really see ourselves functioning in today? Which way, God's way or the world's way, is going to bring the most healthy experience, the most happy and fulfilling experience? I think any honest and humble heart would have to admit that God's way is always going to be better than our way as human beings. And really, as we come to this passage this morning, that's predominantly the point being addressed, encouraging us to respect God's order and God's authority. Now, the background, remember, in context, Paul's been speaking quite a bit about Christian liberty or the exercise of the freedoms that we have in the grace of God through our relationship with Jesus Christ and the importance of being sensitive to not abusing our freedoms to the point where as we exercise our freedoms, we stumble ourselves into sin because we get too caught up in wanting to have our own rights and freedoms at times. We're harming others because of a disregard of love and what's in their best welfare. Or even worse, failing to glorify God through our decisions and behaviors. And he's been speaking about how we behave with one another personally. And he's really zeroed in on this fact, as we saw last time, of the foremost goal, which is honoring God and helping others. That we could really reduce all of that down to those two things. What honors God and what helps others? Now, as we come to chapter 11, we come to now really a new section in 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 through 14, and it's important to take note of this. Chapters 11 through 14 deal with how we behave ourselves in public worship gathering. That's really the context, which is important to understand in these next few chapters. Chapters 11 through 14 deal with the public worship setting when the church gathers for corporate worship worship. And look, the same goal exists now going forward. In this same context of the public worship gathering, the same goal the Holy Spirit is going to say applies. Honoring God and doing what helps others foremost. We'll see that particularly even as we get into the subject of spiritual gifts. The greatest concern overall is that the church come to a place where we seek to honor God's design honor God's order for how we conduct ourselves and do things in our public worship gatherings. Dealing here specifically, Paul now, with an issue that arose in the church in Corinth in their meetings, and they had some questions and issues, as you can tell, over some things Paul's trying to answer here. And Paul particularly here is trying to answer the subject of God's order and authority between men and women and the distinctions that exist there, as well as the roles of women in regards to worship gatherings and how that would relate to respect towards their husbands as well. And the way this situation in Corinth specifically played out at that local church was the cultural practice of women wearing a head covering or a shawl in regards to when they assembled at the worship meetings. In fact, you notice in verse 10, as we read it there, He says in verse 10 that this head covering was simply a symbol, notice that, a symbol of authority. That is, the women in that culture wore that head covering. It was a symbol of authority. That is, it represented something to God, and it represented something to the onlookers. Now, because in our modern and Western culture, 
We have many different customs from much of the ways of the East that existed in that day, as well as what exists in many of the ways of the East today. If you travel, you realize that a lot of our customs and cultures here are very different than other places in the world. And they hold different customs and cultures that pertain to their society to try and reconcile what's being discussed here and kind of grasp the principles that the Holy Spirit is communicating. It's very helpful to kind of understand the background a little bit that Paul was addressing this in. In that ancient culture, a woman wearing a head covering really was something that spoke very clearly of her status as a woman, as well as her attitude in her heart towards certain things. That custom was understood in that society because it demonstrated as she wore a head covering that she was seeking to be modest in her character, that she wanted to be a woman of dignity and ladylike when she was out in the public gathering of worship, as well as it conveyed that she believed it was appropriate to be under the authority of another person, particularly her husband, as she was out in public. So to wear that head covering was a symbolic thing, and to not wear such in the culture when they gathered was also a way to communicate a different message. And they clearly understood this in that day. It was kind of in the same way, the best way maybe I can illustrate it to grasp some of this, it was kind of like how today in our culture of wearing a wedding ring. Right? This, this wedding ring is a symbolic thing that I wear, that you wear if you're married. And that wedding ring is a symbolic thing to convey something. Right? When a woman wears an engagement ring or a wedding ring, she specifically demonstrates a fact. And that symbol indicates the ring that she already belongs to another man. Right? That's what it conveys. It conveys something. She is already in a commitment. She's already accounted for. And thus wearing the ring indicates that she is unavailable. It serves as a symbol, right, to, to honor her relationship, to protect her, to protect the relationship. But it's just a symbol, right? That's all it is. This ring is just a symbol of a heart commitment and a heart condition and a status that someone could be in. So to not wear a wedding ring as a married woman would what? Send a very wrong message in the same way for a man. To not wear your wedding ring sends a very wrong message because we understand the symbol is intended to convey a message about the status I'm in or the condition I'm in. And it can honestly dishonor your spouse. So wearing a ring or not wearing a ring demonstrated something in our culture. And in the same way, in that culture, wearing the head covering or not wearing the head covering in Corinth, in that Greek culture, it clearly sent a message to the people in society. It sent a message, if you wore the head covering as a lady, that you believed God had created a proper design for order and authority and that you wanted to be respectful of that and you wanted to honor that when you were together with your husband. To not do such conveyed that you did not want to respect that and in some ways we'll talk about actually conveyed some other things as well. Well, that being said, look with me. Paul begins in verse two. He says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. And he says, keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he begins by commending the church here for following many of the teachings that he had already given to them prior to this time. When Paul uses the word traditions here, uh, he's talking about the verbal teachings of the spiritual principles that he had conveyed to the church at Corinth. Again, we want to understand at this time when Paul's writing the letter of 1 Corinthians, they did not yet have finished copies, as you and I are blessed with, of the entire canon of Scripture. 
right? They had the Old Testament, but many of the New Testament letters were still being written. Paul's writing one now to the church at Corinth. We have the, the copy of it. But at that time, much of the doctrine in the church, much of spiritual teaching about the kingdom of God was orally communicated. It was committed orally. They didn't have it in written form yet. So they would pay attention to what they heard, the traditions, the oral teachings, and then they would seek to carry them things out. So Paul's here complimenting them how they were observing his teachings and following many of those things. But obviously, there were some areas they needed some correction in in their public gathering. And this is why Paul's been writing this particular letter. And here he's addressing another area where they had some questions and issues to try and help them sort some of those things out. So he says, carrying on verse three, but I want you to know, he says, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God or God the Father. So the first thing Paul does here, notice is he lays out God's established order for authority. And Paul's pointing here in verse three to the principle of headship. That's what he's discussing here, the principle of headship. The idea is governing leadership when we say headship. And remember, our God clearly is a God of order by nature. When you look at the nature of God, he is a God of order. So he's orderly in his ways. And as a result, God has established principles of order and authority and accountability in the way that he has set things into motion in his creation and how it functions. So everything in God's creation, whether it's a system, whether it's a societal function, an institution, it works most efficiently when it operates within the framework of order and authority. That's how it's going to operate best. God established it that way. Order and authority are like fundamental pillars for everything that God's created. So when you have the presence of order and authority and that being submitted to, that determines the strength and the success of how something is going to function. Now, when you do the opposite of that, when, when there's the absence of order, when there's the absence of authority, and when there's the absence of submitting to and respecting order and authority that's been established, as a result, what do you have? Chaos, right? Then you have confusion, then you have rebellious activity, you begin to have disorder and unhealthy deterioration of things. So the rule of order and authority applies in many different areas, it applies in a society, in a civilization. If you want it to function properly, you got to have order. You have to have authority. It applies in a school system. You got to have order and authority. It applies in business. It applies in military with a group of troops. It applies in a police department. Order and authority applies as well in families and how families function in a healthy way. And it also applies in the church. So by God's design, it's appropriate for us to submit to order and authority that exists for our own welfare as people. And so that we don't cause things to deteriorate. And that's why this is foundational. And that's why Paul begins verse three by saying, I want you to know. He's saying, look, this is important. I want you to know this, that God's design has a chain of command and order and authority. And that divine order is for our welfare. And Paul mentions in verse three here, kind of like a four tier description, if you would, of order and authority. He mentions God, the father, Jesus, the son, man, and woman. And he uses this word in verse uh, three here, three different times, this term head. 
And again, when he's using that term head to discuss the principle of headship, he's referring to the idea of authority or governing leadership. Again, if I can illustrate our head on our human body is what? It's the governing organ for the rest of the function of the body, right? The head's dependent upon and the head is in connection to and works in conjunction with the entire body. But the head by its role is the governing organ for the rest of the body. That's the purpose the head functions. It serves in a way for the welfare of the rest of the body to direct, it sends signals to direct the affairs of the other parts of the body. And the body parts are to respond submissively to the direction coming from the head. Now, when the body is not responding correctly to the head, the body then begins to operate in spastic ways, right? It can operate in unhealthy ways. And, and to the degree that the body functions in cooperation with proper healthy signals from the head, the body operates in a way that's healthy. It operates in a way that's productive and things work the way that they're supposed to. So we begin to see even in the human body, the head directing the rest of the body is what keeps the body safe. It keeps the body operating in the way that it's supposed to. So it has nothing to do with the issue of superiority or inferiority or importance or lack of importance, right? Is my head any more important than my heart? No, in case you didn't get that. No, right? <laughs> it isn't. If my heart stops, it doesn't matter what my head's doing anymore. So my head and my heart have two different functions, but they're both critically important. They just have different functions. One's not more superior, one's not more inferior, which means this, and hear me this morning, being under authority does not equal inferiority. Being under authority does not equal inferiority. And in the same way, being in authority doesn't indicate superiority. So when you're in authority, it doesn't mean that you have superiority. It just means that we have different roles and function in how things operate in those realms. So God, by his wise determination and good purposes, has established order and authority in relationships. And he mentions here three relationships in verse three. And for the sake of clarity, we're going to look at them kind of in the reverse way, in the sense of the greatest degree of authority first and descending downward. The first thing we consider in verse three is the highest degree of authority, and that is the relationship among God the Father and Jesus his son. He says there in verse three that the head, the headship or leadership and authority of Jesus Christ is God the Father. So Jesus the Son and God the Father, the Bible teaches are completely equal in their persons, right? That's what the word of God teaches us, but yet they're distinct and different in their roles in how they function. Jesus himself said in John chapter 30, I and my father are one. That means total equality in their divinity. However, Jesus did what? He willingly subjected himself to the authority and the headship of his father over his life. Jesus voluntarily submitted his will to the father's authority. Jesus said, I don't say or do anything unless the father tells me to. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. So again, you can have equality and yet have authority and submission. The Godhead indicates that. Jesus and the Father were completely equal, and yet Jesus functioned under the authority as well as his role in the way that he related to his Father. So again, shows us that very reality. The second relationship, we notice, is with man 
and Jesus. We read in verse 3, it says there that the head of every man is Christ, the Lord Jesus. So by design, Jesus, our Lord, has rightful authority over every man, the Bible says. The idea is over all mankind. Jesus has rightful authority. Every man should be under the authority living submitted to our Lord. And to the degree that we honor the headship of Jesus over our lives as mankind, to the degree that we let Jesus rule over us, it saves us, right? When I bow the knee to the lordship and authority of Jesus, that's what saves me. That's what spares me from a lot of bad decisions and making my life worse than it could be. Letting Jesus guide and lead and letting him direct me is what brings what's best for my welfare, to respect his authority over my life and follow his leadership and guidance in my life. Rebellion against the headship of Jesus does the exact opposite. It's what leads to problems, right? When I rebel against Jesus's direction, then my life gets more difficult. And I make problems and I make a mess because I'm functioning outside of that healthy order. The third relationship he mentions in verse three is the relationship between the woman and the man. He says in verse three that the the head of every man is Christ. But notice he says the head of woman is man. Now take notice. Christ, the Bible says here, is the head over every man. But watch the language in verse three. He says, but the head of Woman or the woman is man. He doesn't say is every man. He takes the word every out now. And I think that's purposeful. In other words, the verse does not convey or say that the head of every woman is every man. The language changes there. Now that is very important because the Bible does not teach that all men generally rule over all women in creation. That's unbiblical. The Bible does not teach that universally all men are to rule over all women. That would be dangerous. That would be unhealthy. What the Bible does teach, God's word, is that there are two institutions that God has established where male headship is to be appropriate, where the male is to be operating in a way whereby he is in charge and directing the relationship and its function, and that that should be respected It should be honored and submitted to in cooperation because it's God's prescribed order. So male headship exists in two institutions. First of all, the marriage or the home. And the second area is within the local church. In these institutions, men have been given by God a God-given responsibility as well as the God-given rightful role to provide headship over women who are under their care. Out of love and benefit to do what is best in providing leadership, in providing protection and guidance, but in all, listen, but in all other aspects of society, that principle does not exist. In other words, in every other aspect of society, business, government, you know, uh, you know, just education, pick any other area. In all those other areas, the Bible does not teach exclusivity of male leadership. It teaches it in the home and in the church, but in the government or in education or in society or business, male headship is not exclusive in those arenas. 
In those areas, God does not address things the same way. So male headship is not God's order universally. It's specifically for those areas. So in the marriage or home life, Ephesians 5 says it specifically. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband, here's our term, is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ or subjects itself to Christ's leading, so let the wives in the same manner be to their own husbands in everything. Now take notice, whenever I do premarital counseling, I always, always point this out where it says there, wives submit to your own husbands. Again, notice the Holy Spirit's emphasis, your own husbands. In other words, in marriage, a woman willingly submits herself to one man's leadership and direction in her life. When a woman enters into the marriage relationship, she voluntarily chooses to place herself under the authority and the leadership of that man who she is willingly deciding to enter into a marriage covenant with, allowing him to be the decision maker and allowing him to provide leadership and authority in the home. And let me just say, if someone did not tell you that before you got married, I apologize for that. But that is what God's prescribed order is. And look, that is also why I always tell women, that's why it's very important to choose well. That's why it is absolutely critical before you enter into that marriage relationship to choose well and be sure because you are willingly putting yourself under the leadership of that man. So you want to make sure you choose well. The Bible doesn't teach you need to submit to all men, to every man, but the Bible does teach that you are choosing to voluntarily submit yourself to that one man. And so you want to make sure you're selecting well and who you're allowing to provide leadership. Now, God's word secondarily teaches male headship in, as I said, the local church. First Timothy chapter 2 says it specifically this way in regard to public worship. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority governing leadership over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He goes back to the creation account. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. In other words, she led the way in spiritual confusion and, and misguidance. And this was the basis of God providing male leadership in the local church. So the Bible teaches again, oversight and governance in the local church and its affairs is to be conducted by male leadership in the primary leadership or oversight in the governance of the church, as well as the primary teaching role for spiritual instruction for men and women generally in the congregation is to be a role that is fulfilled by a man, not a woman, not a female pastor. I just had a Bible college student ask me recently, hey, I was just wondering, what's your perspective on females being pastors? I said, the biblical one. It's the biblical one. God does what he does and establishes and sets up what he does because somehow God just knows what works best. God loves us. Everything is done out of his love for us and his wisdom for us. It has nothing to do with anything other than God says, I want what's best for you. Just trust my prescribed order. Just operate in those ways. Again, look, the issue at the end of the day is God expects voluntary submission from every human being, right? To a degree, we're all to be living in submission to authority in the proper areas where we should. 
Now, Paul goes on in verse 4, having laid that foundation to say, in every man, therefore, in light of these things, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head, for that is as if the same as if she had her head shaved. So in light of God's established order, Paul begins to say the church must not conduct itself as God's greatest witness of what's right and wrong in such a way where they indicate they don't accept God's order and how God has established anything. He mentions here in verses four and five, praying, which is speaking to God, and prophesying, which is speaking for God or communicating for God. And Paul says here in the worship meeting, you can't be conducting yourself there at the church of Corinth in a way whereby you're conveying the wrong idea when people are looking at you as the church as the pillar and ground of truth for what's right and what's wrong. He's saying of all places, you need to uphold what would be best and clarity for people. He mentions, notice, two different head mentions in these verses here. And you're going to notice the first one is a reference to the physical head. The second one is a reference to the spiritual head. And again, when he says that, so when he says every man praying or prophesying with his physical head covered dishonors his spiritual head. That's the idea there. Picking up from this idea of headship from the prior verses. So what Paul's addressing, again, remember, has the head covering was a symbol of authority In that culture, as they would assemble, people understood that when gathered, customarily, women would wear a shawl. They would wear their head covered, and customarily, typically, men, therefore, would not. So Paul says in verse 4, for a man to wear a head covering when participating in public worship, he says that would cause dishonor to his spiritual head, which is Jesus. In other words, that man, if he did that, would be saying or demonstrating that he was not in authority because he was wearing a symbol of someone else being authority over his head. And so he says, if a man wears a head covering, what he's saying is he's not in authority as a man. And Paul's saying that violates God's order. He is an authority. He's a man. He's supposed to be an authority over his household and over his wife providing leadership. Yes, he's under Christ's authority, but he doesn't want to dishonor Christ's authority ultimately and and prescribed order by indicating that as a man, he's not in authority or that somehow maybe his wife's in authority. So he said that would cause confusion. Now, on the other side of that, verse five, he says, if the woman therefore prays or prophesies in the worship gathering with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head, referring to her husband. In other words, that would cause dishonor to her husband if she wasn't wearing the head covering because it would indicate and convey that she refused to acknowledge her husband's leadership or his authority and covering in the family. Again, remembering what we talked about, this idea of the head covering conveyed something very clear to them culturally. So in that day and age, if a woman did not wear the head covering in the public gathering, She was indicating either A, she was unmarried, and that's why she wasn't wearing a head covering, just like the ring or not wearing a ring, or sometimes worse, in some cases, it was done to convey when you didn't wear head covering that you were a prostitute and that you were available for hire. And so therefore, you wanted to indicate I'm not under the authority of anybody. I'm completely available for hire if you would like to engage me in the society. And so Paul, understanding these things, says, look, therefore, for the woman not to wear the covering, it would dishonor her head because it would be saying, in essence, when they gather as a church, look, we don't care about God's prescribed order, and I don't need to function under my husband's covering. 
I'll do what I want when I want, and I don't care what he thinks about it. And Paul said that would be sending a very bad signal. That would be conveying something unhealthy. It would be like if I basically took off my wedding ring. Right, if I take off my wedding ring after you see me wear my wedding ring for 26 years, kind of sending the wrong signal, wouldn't you agree? All of a sudden, that's kind of, you're kind of sending a confusing signal, Tony, if you're taking off your wedding ring now. And this is the idea. As Paul says, you don't want to send the wrong message. Now, likely, I think what was happening is as they were learning about the liberty in Christ, and Paul's been talking a lot about liberties, maybe some of the women were just saying, yoo-hoo, liberty, I've been so done with this cloth on my head. Every time I go to church, I don't want to wear it anymore. But Paul, in love, understanding in that particular culture how that custom was so strong among them as a culture in the Greek days among them, Paul saying, look, I know you may have liberty in Christ, and it's really not about the piece of cloth on your head at the end of the day, but Paul's trying to say in that culture, you would send a really confusing message if you didn't just put on the head covering when you go to church. And in that culture, Paul was more worried about the heart message that it sent. In fact, so concerning was it for Paul, he gets pretty severe in verse 5. He says, if she doesn't wear the covering, he says, that's almost the same as if her head, look what he says, were shaved. Then he goes, verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, then let her be covered. Now, by nature... Women do not normally, right? And I use the word normally. By nature, women do not normally shave their heads. So Paul understanding this, and again in that day, the only time in that culture a woman would shave her head was if she was trying to convey a few things or someone was trying to convey a message about her head having been shaved. It was a very negative symbol. And that's why Paul says it would be shameful if her head was shaved. Typically, you would shave your head in that culture for three purposes or have your head shaved. If you were a prostitute to make yourself clearly definable and it pointed you out in the culture, or if you were a lesbian and you wanted to convey the image of masculinity, so you shaved your head to look more masculine, or at times as a way of shaming a woman if she committed adultery, they would shave her head to disgrace her as a woman because she had committed adultery against her husband. The point is, a shaved head, Paul's saying, it was always a very negative image. That's what Paul's trying to say. It's a very negative image. And so concerning, Paul uses almost strong cynicism here to awaken the danger of dishonoring God's order. He's saying, look, if you're not going to wear a head covering, you might as well just shave your head then. I mean, he's kind of just pointing out severities. Look, if you're going to do that, why don't you just go all the way and just completely shave your head if you're going to be that shameful about it? And you're going to be that much in disregard, he says, of God's order and this idea of dishonoring the headship of what God's established. Again, Ephesians 5 says one of the two commands for wives is to see that she respects her husband. And so it mattered greatly to God that the wives would show this respect towards functioning under their husband's spiritual and leadership covering. Verse 7, Paul goes on to say, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, he says, since he is the image and the glory, the reflection of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Thanks, Paul. You're digging us deeper here. So Paul here refers to the original notice order of creation and how God made man first 
and then he created the woman from the man. That was the order in which God did things. In verse 7, he mentions there that man shouldn't cover his head again because he says he is the image and the glory of God. Man was originally created to what? To bear God's image. That's what the Bible teaches. Genesis chapter 1 God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. The idea is that man's purpose on earth really is to be a reflector. We are supposed to, having been created in the image of God, be those who reflect our God. We're the the image bearers of God, the reflectors of God. But he says there in verse 7, however, the woman is the glory, the reflection of man. Because what did God do? God then created Eve from Adam. And so therefore, she was created to reflect her origin of having been from the man originally. So the spiritual concept there is that a woman reflects the man that she's directly attached to relationally. So who she's attached to relationally is who she tends to reflect in her person and in her countenance and her behavior and her ways. Now, to me, that's always a very good reminder, and sometimes I have to bring that up even in you know, marital conversations or whatever when guys start to complain about their wives, and I say, look, who do you think she reflects? She's married to you. So your wife is a reflection of who you are as her husband and how you're leading her and caring for her and ministering to her and guiding her, and so that's what the Bible teaches So ultimately, if you don't like something, then perhaps the place to start is, uh, aren't you the one that's supposed to be leading? There's a breakdown there, and maybe a little more attention needs to be given to love and leadership and taking better care of a woman in such a way where maybe she would start to reflect something different. Because the Bible says she's the glory or the reflection of man, and particularly the man that she's connected to. So verse 8, Paul says, for man is not from, in his origin, woman, but the woman in her origin is from The man, again, Genesis chapter two says the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. Remember, he took one of the ribs out of his his side and it says, then the rib which the Lord had taken from the man, he then made the woman, brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. So the original order was that the woman was created secondarily coming from the man and after the man. So that's why Paul says in verse 9, nor was man created for the woman, but the woman initially, technically, he says, was created for the man. In other words, Adam was not created for Eve. Biblically speaking, Eve was created for Adam. Genesis chapter 2.18 in creation tells us God's intention. It says, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone I will make him, that is for him, I will make for him a helper comparable to him. So Eve was designed by God to be a co-respondent for Adam, to be a completer for him, to be someone to come alongside of him, to complement him, to make him a more fulfilled and more effective and better functioning individual. And God created Eve for that purpose. She was taken from his side in order to come alongside him and be a life partner that would enhance his earthly experience. So Eve's original role was to help and support Adam in his function as he worked the field, and to be able to come alongside of him and to assist him and to bring about his agenda as he worked the field as a leader as God directed him to. She was designed to complement him, not to compete with him. 
and certainly not to control him. That's not God's design, nor God's order. He says there, verse 9, clearly, man is not, or excuse me, he says, the woman, man was created for the woman, but the woman created for the man. Now, before I move on, let me say something which I know is not politically correct, but I assure you is biblically accurate, and, and that is this. And please hear my heart. I want to encourage the ladies, especially in light of the culture that we live in, to set aside the lies of what feminism is trying to push down your throat and change your mindset about and instead hear God's ideal. Because biblically speaking, a Christian woman will find her greatest fulfillment, her greatest happiness and fulfillment, not in spending her life trying to accomplish all of her own visions and all of her own goals, but instead seeking to help fulfill the vision, the agenda that God has given to her husband. And by seeking to look for ways to come alongside of him, to support him, to encourage him, to be a partner, to provide strengths in the midst of his weaknesses. And the greatest fulfillment a woman will find is not trying to fulfill her own goals, but trying to assist her husband to fulfill the goals and the agenda that God is directing him towards. Now, again, let me say, I know that is not politically correct, but from what I see, it is biblically accurate. It was God's original design for our health, for our happiness, for all of our fulfillment to operate in a way that God in his love and wisdom intended for our families. Paul says, verse 10, for this reason also, notice the woman ought to have a symbol, there's that term again, of authority on her head because of the angels. Well, thanks, Paul. If it wasn't good enough, now you're bringing angels into this. So what Paul addresses here, another reason we're to honor God's authority and order is for the angels who are always observing and present, listen, in our worship meetings. Again, we need to remember there's a spiritual realm of angels and demons and a devil, and this spiritual realm is paying attention to and is present at times in different ways amongst the people of God. And angels, as created eternal beings, listen, are very sensitive to order and authority. Do you want to know why? Because they saw the greatest disruption of order and authority when one of their own rebelled against the order and the authority of God, the devil, and they see all the chaos it's brought when order and authority isn't observed. So angels are very sensitive to order and authority and operating in those ways. And when we operate outside of that, it disturbs the angels because they're thinking, oh my goodness, we know what happens when somebody rebels against authority. We see the problems that it causes. Verse 11 says, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of the Lord, of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, Paul says, even so man comes through the woman. That's true. But all things, he says, are from God. So despite all this teaching about male headship and God's order, notice that's not the only dynamic that matters for life's existence. There is by design, the way God created his order, interdependence, right? This is what he's getting to, interdependence between men and women, that we are mutually dependent upon one another for our survival. This is what the Holy Spirit's conveying here in the word of God, that there's a mutual dependence, which does not cancel out God's order and authority. But he says the reality is, in the same way that man needs woman, he says woman needs man, and we all need one another. He's saying any man, though he may provide leadership or direction, 
his very existence came from the fact that he was dependent upon a woman to get him into this world, he says. If it wasn't for a woman giving birth and going through the hard process of bringing that child into, he says, look, everybody ultimately is completely interconnected and we simply need each other and that's God's creative balance. We fulfill our roles and we function together. And look, what a wonderful balance that brings to the home life, to the church life. Look, I can't imagine what my life would be like without my wife. It would be a very boring, just, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good. The the wonderful benefits that we bring as men and women in the way that we complement one another. Paul says, this is essential. We need each other. We have our own roles and our functions. And as we embrace those things in faith, we ultimately bring about what's best in fulfillment and happiness in God's order. And he says, look, ultimately what we simply need to come back to, he says, verse 12, is that all things are from God. We're just submitting to God's design in the way that he established things. So Paul, in light of that, verse 13, he says, so judge among yourselves. Is it proper, he says, for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, who would pray to God with her head uncovered? A man. So what Paul, in essence, is saying in verse 13 is, even though a woman is not inferior to a man but equal, does that mean it's appropriate for a woman to function just like a man does and to do the same things that men do in church meetings, praying with their head uncovered, that would be doing things that men did. And the idea is he's saying, why are women trying to cross over and do things that men are designed to do? Crossing that boundary. And he builds on this now as he concludes. He says, verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you a lesson, he says, that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, he says, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. So Paul refers to nature as God's creative design of men and women. He says nature's order by God's design is that women, right? Women generally by nature have been given an ability by God to grow and wear longer hair than men. That's just the way genetically we're wired differently. Women typically have longer hair. And he says, this is like a glorious gift that God has given to the woman to accent her beauty as a female. And genetically, it's almost like God gave women, Paul says, it's almost like God gave women a natural covering in their hair. That's what he says to her hair is like a glory. It's like a covering to her. He says, it's almost as if God naturally gave her a covering as compared to the contrast. Paul says in verse 14, He says on the other side of that, regarding the man, he says, where am I? Verse 14. There it is. He says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man, however, has long hair, looking feminine, the idea is that it becomes a dishonor to him. Now, the point that Paul's making here is is really very evident. What he's conveying here is the long hair of a woman was the outward sign that she was a female. The long hair of the woman typically was an outward sign of her gender and her role, distinguishing her as feminine versus a man who typically wore short hair. It identified him clearly as a male. So Paul's pointing to the importance, listen, of gender distinction by God's natural design. And what the Holy Spirit is trying to convey through Paul here is this, is God has made things in such a way by our physical differences in our bodies as males and females, that we can clearly distinguish when we look at a person, that's a male and that's a female. 
And he's saying God, by his natural creative design, made things in a way where we should always be able to tell the difference between a man and a woman. God designed there to be noticeable differences between men and women so that we would never be confused about that. He's saying God does not want us, listen, to do things that would cause onlookers to question as they looked at a person, is that a male or is that a female? You know, the word of God tells us in Deuteronomy 22 to try and blur or change our gender distinctions says is an abomination before God. In other words, to try and blur gender distinction is not only not healthy, it's utterly perverse it's distorted, it's harmful, and it disrespects God. And can we please, as the church, try and remember that in a generation and a culture that is creating a lot of confusion for many people and that is ultimately harming a lot of the lives of children growing up and people who are struggling with things that end up just making problems more difficult for themselves. Look, having addressed this idea here in the local church of honoring God's order and authority, and the issue there was wearing a head covering and not wanting to cause confusion about gender, Paul now concludes to pacify those who are alarmed, saying, oh, great, this head covering thing. Well, look, Paul addresses that in case you're panicking this morning. In case you're thinking, does that mean i got to take my mask And when I go to church, slip it up over my head if I'm a girl. No, you don't. All right, look at verse 16. He says verse 16 for us here. But if anyone seems to be contentious, I don't like this stuff that they're saying. He says, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul's saying this was not intended to be a universal custom for all churches. The issue there at Corinth was not so much outward as much as it was inward. In other words, it wasn't so much, listen, it wasn't so much about the head covering as much as it was about the heart condition. This is what Paul's trying to say. Because look, again, Paul said it was a symbol, right? So like anything else, a woman could wear a symbol of authority and wear the head covering and yet be completely like pushy and controlling with her husband. And and, and so then does the thing on her head do anything, right? God looks upon the heart. And Paul's saying it's not about the head covering. This isn't a universal custom that he says we were creating for all the church. He says, I'm trying to address something there in Corinth. That in that culture, people saw it as an important thing. So Paul says, honor it in your culture because you don't want to send confusion as the church. But he's saying this wasn't a universal custom. The point ultimately was about the heart condition. And let me just say this when it comes to passages like this. Head coverings are addressed one time in the entire Bible. Good theology, folks, is counting. Counting. How many times does something show up in the Bible? Head covering shows up one time in the whole Bible. Our heart condition, that's all throughout the Bible. So what Paul is saying to us is, look, what God cares about most is what is our attitude displayed by our actions in the way that we operate towards God's way as compared to the world's way towards God, order, and authority as compared to how we want to function in our lives. The most important thing in our life currently is, am I living submitted to God's way? Am I yielding to what God desires? Because the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. We want to submit to God, say, God, we trust your way is best, and live in that way to honor you and to do what helps us and to help 
all those around us. Let's stand. Let's pray together.